1: khpsafmam <laughs> ah, one You can tell I am flying solo without my co-host today. And I am so excited to be here on the Ask Brian radio show. And Jennifer, thank goodness you're in the studios with me because we always make fun of the fact that we don't need Peter, but maybe we need Peter.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. Tracy, let's not get crazy. Slow down a little bit. It's still early.
1: (laughs) Yeah, because, you know, one of the things that we always talk about, if you are a big listener to the Ask Brian radio show, you know this already, which is that we always like to talk about why is Brian stuff with an E and the big thing that we don't want to do is inflate Peter's ego right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> give him any more ammunition that's that's true hopefully he won't come back and listen to that this is, one yeah
1: yeah and you know he's actually in career right now so he's Probably, if I know you, Peter, I know you probably stopped in the middle of your hike on Machu Picchu, and you have pulled up a Facebook feed, and you are critiquing us as we are here <laughs> last today. I would not be surprised. So shout out to Peter in Peru. But in all seriousness, we are so excited with our guests that are coming up today, and Talking about the ease and ask Brian, we are all about the experts. And today we have some really great experts that are going to talk to us, Jennifer, in the nonprofit field, which is going to be incredibly exciting. And when we talk about experts, we talk about the fact that these guests that we have on, they invest so much of their passion, their time, and their energy in really developing their expertise. We always use a little mathematical formula that in order to be really qualified as an expert, you have to have 10,000 hours in your field. And people do that by, you know, an average of 40 hours a week over 50 or so consecutive weeks. If you do the math on that, that takes about five years think you're going to find, especially with our nonprofit counsel expert today, that she is well over her allotted hours. And we're also really excited today because we're having an education component to our show where we're bringing on a guest who just started a nonprofit. And so we're going to get to hear all about the process and just have this really amazing conversation and you know, one of the big things that comes with nonprofit organizations is a lot of empathy. So that's one of our favorite. Right. (laughs) That's true. Very good. Yes. (laughs) And, (laughs) and of course, I'm never short on enthusiasm, but I am not going to scream that out. No, no, no. (laughs) It's funny that you brought that up. I thought on my way in today, I thought, um,
0: I'm pretty sure neither one of us is going to want to scream into the poor microphone, so no, we we won't do that. Instead, we'll do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good enough.
1: <laughs> yes, so we can have enthusiasm and excitement without busting out anyone's eardrums. That's be true. Another new e that we have. But enough about the e's. I think we've made our exceptional point, <laughs> and let's just get into this content because. Like I was setting this up before, this is going to be such a fantastic conversation for any of the listeners who are thinking about starting a nonprofit, who might already currently have a nonprofit and feel really overwhelmed, or just have always been curious as an entrepreneur what it might be like to, in addition to running your own business, perhaps have a nonprofit extension of your business. And I actually didn't really mean to include all those E's in there, but I did, so we have some bonus E's. So I'd like to bring on our guest, and we have with us today May Harris, who is the founder of Four Purpose Law Group, and also the founder of Nonprofit Council, and she's also the host of the Nonprofit Council Podcast. So, hello, May, and welcome. And then I'd also like to introduce our second guest, which is Erin Medibel, who is the founder of Bella Vita Tucson, which is an extraordinary nonprofit that we're going to hear more about today. And yay for all the ladies in the house today, too, Jennifer. I <laughs> know, no, I like
0: that. We've got, we're full. Hey, you know what? Another E. We're full of estrogen today.
1: <laughs> we are, and we love that, and we don't even have to apologize for it today. Yeah. So that's even better. Yeah, so, May, thank you so much for joining the Ask Brian Radio Show. What I'd love to ask you first is just law has such a broad spectrum of opportunities in the fields that you can choose. What was the catalyst for you in choosing to take the nonprofit path? Sure. Well, first I want to say
0: thank you so much to you, Tracy, for inviting me to be on this program. It's quite exciting to be on radio. So really, I graduated law school back in 2000 and I got a great job, at least I thought it was a great job, at in-house at a pharmaceutical company, a biotech company. And I had been practicing in intellectual property law for several years when I received something that I called a flyer that changed my life. So I had young children in school and in one of their lunch boxes came home a flyer asking if any parents, you know, were an attorney who would be willing to set up a nonprofit charity to support the school. And, you know, I was like, it couldn't be that difficult, right? So I, I went ahead and I volunteered, put my name in the hat and fast forward a couple of years and formed the nonprofit and we had applied for grants and we were incredibly fortunate to have received a $1.7 million Department of Education grant, which was fantastic. But we needed someone to actually run the program. By that point, I was a little tired of protecting other people's sandboxes, a big company corporation sandbox. And so I transitioned to be the executive director of this nonprofit. Fast forward a couple of additional years, and I realized, wow, I know how to be a lawyer and I know how to find things out, but I really don't know all that much about how to lead and manage a nonprofit organization because it's very different. It just it just is. So I went back to the University of San Diego and received a master's degree in nonprofit leadership and management. During that process, I was exposed to a great number of phenomenal nonprofit leaders, founders, entrepreneurs, board members, who all encouraged me to actually start a firm that focused specifically On the needs of nonprofit tax exempt organizations. And so I did that about 11 years ago. And we're coming up on our 12 year anniversary next April. And we've grown, you know, in size and geography. We have offices in California, Maryland, Texas, Virginia, because, you know, there's such a huge need for experienced legal counsel for nonprofits. There just aren't a lot of attorneys that focus in this area. And the ones that do tend to be at big firms that charge between 700 and $1,000 an hour, which is way outside the realm of most startup or even mid-sized nonprofits. So it was, has been quite the ride as an entrepreneur to the point where about a year ago, I started Nonprofit Council because again, there's such a, you know, it's interesting. At the same time, there's a ton of information out there for any founder or nonprofit manager to find. But you'd be surprised how much of it is not quite correct and how many people, oh, I found a good set of bylaws online. Well, it's the wrong state. So that statutory framework doesn't work. So I launched Nonprofit Council really to try to uh, educate the sector. You've got a lot of inspired people out there that are, are starting and running nonprofits, but the resources they need are either sparse or not quite correct. So I wanted to address that need.
1: I love that, and I know that that gives you the opportunity to really even make further impact. And you've authored a book, you started a podcast around that. Like you're really, and I, I love it. With how to start a nonprofit that will change the world. And I think every nonprofit starts out with that goal, but then things can get really super overwhelming. And that's one of the reasons why today I really wanted to also bring. Other guest who's with us today in the studio, Erin, because you are right in the middle of that process, right, Erin? So please share with our audience a little bit about yourself and then the amazing story around Bella Vita. Yeah, well, thank you, Tracy. It's great to be here, and I really truly feel honored to be on with May. Bella Vita. Well, let's start with I was a teacher for nine years. Um, I taught middle school and high school and did a lot. Actually, now knowing what I know, I did a lot of nonprofit work in the school. Just helping kids needing money to go to prom or needing help getting a dress for prom. Um, Just little things, but nonetheless helping. I transitioned out of that and started a company into Sun an events company, and learned from there that, you know, being on boards was just part, in my opinion, part of being part of a community. And um, it's kind of where I also learned about the three Ds. You know, you need a doer on a board, a donor on a board, and a door opener. And through all of the Ds, you can have a good progressive and productive board. So getting involved in that. And about a year ago, we um, figured out that our daughter, who is now 14, was going through, you know, an eating disorder, and really struggling with it. And we found that there was no help in Tucson, inpatient help. They will refeed the children here, but then send them to the psychiatric hospital, which is really just not where a pediatric patient should be for an eating disorder. We were told by our pediatrician that the best place was in Denver, and we were able to figure that out. Thankfully, we were able to, through our insurance, get it you know with a small, Deductible, a $5,000 deductible. It's not really small, but get her taken care of there. We then transferred her to UCSD's program and we were there for a total of five months. And it's really, you know, changed our life. We had to make the hard decision to come back to Tucson and know that there was no care in Tucson for pediatric patients who have eating disorders. And beyond that, there was no care for the parents of those pediatric patients. As a parent who has a child now that has an eating disorder, it's a completely different mental health game, but it's a huge deal. And 20% of our patients who have eating disorders really struggle and end up having you know, suicidal ideations and end up acting on those. So it's a very scary place to be the parent and not having any education. And so we're thankful that UCSD really gave us those a toolbox to pull from, but coming back to Tucson and realizing there was no help for us once we got back here, we decided to start our own nonprofit It's called Bella Vita Tucson. And we help parents and the patient or the eating disorder child process. And they're just simply process groups. And ultimately, we would love to have our own inpatient eating disorder hospital in Tucson. And how that will work, you know, we're not quite sure. Maybe it's tied to a hospital that's here already. But just a, a one-stop shop for parents to have inpatient residential PHP program and then an IOP program and then outpatient counseling and nutrition help and that's really the goal. But like you said, we did just start June thirteenth. We got our five hundred one c three paperwork completed and sent back to us, and off we went. And I have been very involved in nonprofits: JDRF, Make A Wish, the Children's Museum here in Tucson. So I thought I knew, you know, what to expect, but starting your own nonprofit is much different than being on the board <laughs> as I'm sure May knows. So it's been um, a lot. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing your story and May. So you're probably hearing a lot in what Ann was saying of something that you probably come across quite a bit, which is someone has a personal story that makes an impact in their life. And then as a result of that, then they, begin the journey of starting a nonprofit, what are some of the biggest hurdles in a scenario like Aaron was sharing with us? What are some of the biggest hurdles that a person who maybe has that on a nonprofit board, maybe they have no experience with, with engaging with a nonprofit, but just really have this really job and passion to make an impact? What are some of the hurdles that they face as they're starting out? That's a great
0: question. And to that point, I hear this all the time. I, I speak to nonprofit founders every day, and I addressed it in my book, um, which you so kindly referred to, which is, you know, nonprofit founders are a really interesting breed. They have perception. They've, they've observed an unmet need in their community, and they are empowered and passionate about making a change. And what makes them so different is they can't own it a nonprofit doesn't have shareholders. It is owned by the public. It is a charitable endeavor where really people are putting their passion, time, treasure, energy into something that, is, that they can't own. They're not going to get dividends, you know, like a, a normal business. So it's, it's a very unique breed. One thing I love working about working with nonprofit founders is exactly that. They're passionate, but it isn't easy, even though it's very altruistic and you're making a huge difference in your communities, there are so many obstacles. And the first one, you know, Erin referred to, which is actually getting tax exempt status. That's a huge obstacle. And there's a lot of traps for the unwary in there because there are three different forms you can use to get exemption. I have had clients that did the exemption before they formed the entity. They, it was just so confusing. So it's complex, it's confusing, and there are traps even at the very first stages of starting a nonprofit. And then you have to append all the other challenges that any business would have. You know, you have employment problems, you have a board you have to set up, you have policies, procedures, compliance issues that actually are even greater on a nonprofit than they are on many for-profit businesses. So there are a great many hurdles that nonprofits have to, you know, overcome in their first three to five years of being in existence.
1: So, one of the things that I wanted to ask you is the, the the tax setting up the tax of five hundred one c three. I think that's absolutely so it's imperative, but it also can be overwhelming. What is one challenge you think that, that sort of comes out of the blue that people aren't expecting in just a quick minute, and then we can revisit it after the break? Well, I think
0: something that a lot of people don't expect is how different things are by state. So. The rules in, in Arizona, where Aaron's based, are very different than the rules and the statutes that apply to nonprofit organizations in California, where most of our clients are located. It's a completely different statutory scheme. The filings are different. Um, the requirements in your bylaws are different. And if you are fundraising in other states outside of where you are established, now you have two sets of statutes and rules and laws and compliance to deal with. So I think that's something that a lot of founders and nonprofit leaders are not quite aware of when they step into this, that if, the, if their activities cross state lines in fundraising or
1: even providing your services, you've got multiple statutory schemes to keep track of. That's great. Meg, you were talking about some of the challenges that entrepreneurs may face from the fundraising perspective, which I know is in any business, especially just business development in general, but for nonprofits especially you're 100% dependent upon donations and Aaron, you were expressing something that just recently happened to you today in a fundraising conversation. Can you share with that Share that with us and get May's insight? Yeah. So I was speaking with a donor and, you know, I think the trend has been for uh, nonprofits to kind of minimize their admin costs and really, boast about we only spend 2% on admin costs or what have you. And so today, just trying to help a donor see the value and not necessarily earmarking funds for a specific item, but just letting them be used for anything. And that also including admin costs. And there's a big pushback on that. But ultimately, more value can be done for the nonprofit in my eyes, if you have someone that's paid and that is their only job. So I don't know what you think about all that, May, but I'd love to hear (laughs)
0: Well, it happens all the time. I hear it all the time. And I kind of find it a little insulting, to be honest, as a previous executive director. It's like the donors don't trust you to operate the nonprofit efficiently and well. (laughs) And so really what you're battling is a perception of, you know, I need to restrict this so I make sure that you're doing what you're supposed to do when nothing could be further from the truth. The, the professionals handling nonprofit organizations are some of the brightest people I've ever met. And I represent social entrepreneurs as well, so business people. So if you are charitable in nature and you're giving of your treasure to support a cause, you're a donor, I would encourage you to give unrestricted funds, not restricted funds. And to not be so bought into this myth, it's the overhead myth that you know, you have to be running on a shoestring in order to do the job that you're doing. Nothing could be further from the truth. A well-led organization with a good institutional culture with people who all the jobs are actually being done by different people and you don't have one frenetic executive director who was wearing 10 hats at one time, it's going to be more (laughs) effective in the long run, right? So you know, there are some great resources and and advocates out there that are very, very heavily pushing back against this overhead myth. You know, it used to be, you know, when I was an executive director that they said, oh, 30% is what you needed to kind of peg as you can spend no more than 30% in overhead. Well, that doesn't even make a lot of sense in a lot of situations. So I think a real candid discussion with this funder to, especially you're a new organization, what do they expect you to do with these funds if no one's there to actually build the program and make sure that there are some kind of deliverables accomplished at the end of the day? Who's going to report out to him if something works or doesn't work if someone's not paid to do that reporting?
1: Right. And I think it's, yeah, a trend. I mean, I don't know. It's even 10 years ago, remember, you know, nonprofits boasting how low their percentage of admin costs were. And it just seemed, like you said, just not feasible. It isn't feasible. And you know, the, the more mature organizations will just
0: percentize the executive director's time. So 10% of the time is on admin. <laughs> the rest is on program. And so, you know, you, there are ways to get around even the stubbornness donors when they say that, because at the end of the day, for a small organization, you might have one paid staff who's wearing, again, many multiple hats. And so it's just accounting for them correctly.
1: What are some of the most popular ways that nonprofits can fundraise? And especially when someone's very first starting out, like Erin is, are there certain fundraising initiatives that are better suited for a smaller organization to get them up and running versus the larger organizations? Or are there pretty standardized fundraising opportunities for
0: nonprofits in general? There are so many ways to raise funds as a nonprofit. I think it all depends on really your stakeholder base, right? Who supports you besides your board? Do they have great connections? There was actually a podcast that I did on this with a a fundraising professional who does big galas. And I think for a developed, mature organization, a gala is a great idea. Sometimes those special events, you you think you're gonna make a whole bunch of money, you end up not. So I wouldn't fall into the trap of thinking, oh, we're going to throw a big dinner, dance, gala. That's more work than you can possibly imagine as a young organization. But a small little silent auction after, you know, when people are coming in, perhaps. But at the end of the day, the most number one most efficient way to fundraise through gifts, grants, and contributions is relationship building. It's getting out and getting your case for support, the reason for what you do and, and the passion you have for that in front of the right people. And they will, they will support you based on their affinity for your mission.
1: So additionally, when you say gifts and grants, I mean, are you, I mean, I've looked up, you know, grants and we are trying, you know, down the road to open a inpatient hospital, but the grant world, I mean, you have people that literally that's all they do is write grants. What do you suggest and where go, where would we go to look for grants that can cover admin costs. And so the money that we are getting locally is and can be said that we are just having that go towards programs.
0: Right. So more and more private foundation funders, so grant makers, are coming along in this idea of we need to get rid of this overhead myth. So there are funders that will give capacity building grants which is unrestricted. It's just, you know, to give you the funds needed to beef up your, your your personnel to carry out your programs, for example. But I have to say, I think there's still a few and far between, but I would recommend checking in your local community. If you have a community foundation, that's a great place to start or an association of grant makers. There's one in San Diego called Catalyst, which is fantastic. So I would check, you know, your local resources for community foundations and um, associations of funders, because that's where you're going to find out who's willing to grant capacity building or for overhead. As far as grant writers, you're right. There are people that do this. That's all they do. I would be leery of one thing. Make sure that they're a, a member of the Association of Fundraising Professionals, AFP, because they have a really robust code of ethics. And one of those pieces is that it, it's not right for them to say, I will be paid in a percentage of the grant if ended.
1: One of the things that I know, May, that you talk about in your podcast is about strategic planning around the nonprofit. So I feel like you know, the things that you've been talking about with Ann in terms of the grant writing and the fundraising, and, and even wanting to dig in a little deeper on the 501c3, but all of this feels pretty comprehensive under the umbrella of strategic planning, what are some of the recommendations that you could make for, especially as we're rounding out the end of fourth quarter and going into the first quarter of 2024 at rapid speed, what are some of the things that a nonprofit can do in the strategic planning area?
0: Well, this is one area where I think nonprofits and for-profits share a similar timeline. And just different words for it. So we're headed into, you know, the fourth quarter of 2023, headed into 2024. This is when, you know, businesses, my businesses are putting together our business plan. A strategic plan for a nonprofit is very similar to that. How are you going to address your goals for 2024 um, and putting that in place? And how are you going to fund it? It's very similar to, you know, where a business plan for a for-profit might be, okay, we need to ramp up our marketing efforts in order to sell more product, right? A nonprofit, we need to ramp up our development efforts to better fund our programs. It's very, very similar. And it's actually, I think it's critical for nonprofits to put together that strategic plan. And it now is a perfect time to do that.
1: So in terms of timing obviously, so strategic planning is so important. Making sure your tax status is so important. At what point do you recommend that a nonprofit, when they're able, or how do they engage with a counsel like yourself? And at what point in their journey, is it something that they should prioritize as the number one expenditure from the beginning? How do you recommend people start working with an attorney that has that specialty like you have? Well,
0: I don't necessarily think an attorney is... Absolutely required, but professional assistance is. So, one thing about nonprofit tax exempt organizations is, you know, the vast, vast majority of them are set up as corporations, which means that the, the directors on the board, the officers, owe fiduciary duties to that organization. And one of those fiduciary duties is the duty of loyalty, obedience, and care. The big one is care. And so, you have a duty to make sure that you don't lie by the seat of your pants and go and find the bylaws on you know somewhere on the on the internet, but that you actually go to a CPA, a trained CPA, a trained attorney, or even solutions similar to your sponsor that will, you know, set you up for success from the very beginning with a good foundation. Because under the duty of care, you have a responsibility to seek out professional guidance when warranted. So it's not just that it's your top priority. It is a foundational fiduciary duty as well.
1: And when you were starting out, what were some of the first things that you did for Belabida? Sir, sure. the first thing I did was just create the name and get like May um, said an LLC. I had no idea that tax exempt status was not part of that, so I learned that later. But we just jumped in and started doing the processing groups, which is why we you know created this. We don't charge for it later, probably three or four months into it, I've then created a website. I now have trifolds that I hand out. I have name badges to use at a networking event or a donor meeting and then business cards. So that's the start. So it sounds like what you did initially was really like what any entrepreneur would do, which is claim the domain, get the brand, establish the name, the logo, some of the marketing materials and things like that and as a way to legitimize the nonprofit and then Now, you're going to be going into the next steps of growth acceleration. So, May, you were asking Erin about her status of Velveeta Tucson, whether it was an LLC or 501c3. So, let's continue that conversation here for our listening audience because it was so informative, and I know people will really be able to benefit from it. Sure. So
0: right at the end, Erin said when she started, she got her LLC and then she got exempt status. And interestingly enough, I've had this happen a few times. An LLC cannot be a tax exempt 501c3 except in very limited circumstances when the members of the LLC, so any uh, limited liability company has members. If those members are themselves 501c3 nonprofit organizations, then you can have an exempt LLC. But a normal run-of-the-mill startup nonprofit should not have filed their entity selection as a limited liability company. So as soon mm-hmm. as we hopped off, I was like, Erin, are you really an LLC? Or please say you're a corporation.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I just and to so- go look at my paperwork. <laughs> And it says nonprofit corporation and I have articles of incorporation. Exactly.
0: So I think that's just something to remember that even at the very beginning. So yes, you've got your domain. Yes, you've got, you know, your name checked out, but your charter with your state is the very first step. And that is, I can say almost never as an LLC. So, it is, is simple. LLCs are simple, but they're the wrong entity type or selection if you want to be a 501c3 public charity.
1: Woo! And, and I was, yeah, right? Woo! And we were like, I okay, <laughs> was such a happy ending that we are happy to this out and to our live We, audience to to we need that applause. <laughs> we need that applause. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we, need, uh-huh. we need our sound effects for that one. Yes <laughs> Okay. Well, I want to take this opportunity to just really sincerely thank you both for being on the Ask Lion show today. This is a topic we honestly have never covered, at least in my last three years of doing the show. We have never covered the nonprofit arena, and I think it's such an important topic for people to understand. I think it's such an important topic. There are more and more nonprofits being started every day, and I just think it's so so amazing what both of you are doing, both Erin and really taking your daughter's story, impacting so many lives, and then May, of course, on a minute-by-minute, day-by-day, week-by-week basis, you're making the impact, literally changing the world with what you're doing, and it's just, I just have so much appreciation for you both taking the time to be on the show, but one thing I know for sure is that we only scratch the surface of all of the things that are necessary for a nonprofit to run successfully and do what they can become and do what they can do in the world. So May, please let our audience know how can they get in touch with you? How can they learn more about what it is that you're doing and how can we get access to some of this amazing information that you shared with us today. Sure. So you
0: can find us at nonprofitcouncil.com which is, you know, our website, we will be rolling out courses and more content in 2024. It's part of my business plan. But you can also find the Nonprofit Council uh, podcast wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And then you can also find a lot of information on the For Purpose Law Group's website, which is FPLGlaw.com. We have an incredibly robust blog there, hosting about three times a week on um, current events and uh, things that are evolving in the
1: nonprofit sector. So I'd encourage you to check us out there. So fantastic. And Aaron, how can people get in touch with you? Because I feel like you might be able to play for the fun after being on the show today. How can people get in touch uh, with you? Yeah, our website is B as in boy or B as in Bella, V as in Vida, org, And we're very active on social media, just searching Bella Vida Tucson on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. And I think, you know, we are able to speak a little bit more on our website, but I am very active on posting things that people, I mean, today I talked about orthoexia and it's the newest type of eating disorder that people, you know, the clean eaters and the almond moms is what they're called, you know, that is kind of leads into kids having eating disorders. So so fantastic. Well and don't worry if you're driving in that LA traffic, we will be able to have all of these contact information and links and resources on the Ask the Brian podcast. And again, that's A S K B R I E N Ask Brian podcast, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And you can get access to the buyers and all the information on um, Aaron and May and we really are excited to change the world all together thank you both and you have been listening to KHPS FM 107.1 and AM 1220 we are out hometown station. dot com. thanks for a great show ladies
0: to join the conversation and ask us your business questions, and we'll answer them on our next episode. That's askbrien.com.